you have your Bible, please open it right now to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, then please pick up one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 940. We'll be looking today at Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 3 through 8. So let's read that together as we start. It says this, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. You can say all day that a vest is bulletproof, but you can never know for sure until somebody shoots it. You can say all day that God is glorious and that no one can possibly rob God of his glory, but it's when evil comes up against God that that is proven to be true. One of the great questions, one of the great mysteries that we, uh, we wonder is how can God, who is perfectly good, perfectly holy, how can he have created a world in which there is such a thing as sin and evil. Of course, God is not the author of evil. That is very clear in the Bible, but he obviously knew exactly what he was doing. He had the plan for Jesus to come and die for sin, for sinners from before the foundation of the world, but how could he have let evil exist in the first place? And one of the things that we see right here in scripture is that it demonstrates his glory which sounds awfully strange, sounds awfully strange. But what it does is when you take the darkness of evil and compare it to the brightness of the glory of God, it just makes God shine even more brightly in the brightness of his glory. Now that question that I just raised, the problem of evil, that's not something that I expect to have just answered all of your possible questions about that right there, because it is a question that is incredibly difficult. But the reason I bring it up is because we have something here that gives us a partial answer for it. And even as human beings would try to do all kinds of evil, whether they consciously know that it is against God, whether they are consciously trying to act against God or not, what this is telling us is that every human sin is ultimately going to display God's glory. God, who is God, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth the best, most succinct definition of who God is that I know, straight from the Baptist Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's the same in both. But when evil comes up against God, that's when he proves. That's when you show there is nothing that can diminish God's glory. You cannot rob God of his glory. 
Now, where are we here in the scriptures? Those of you who have been around for the last several weeks, you know that we're in a part of Romans that's been a big, long section where Romans is showing us in many, many different ways over and over again that every human being in the world is a sinner who is completely hopeless apart from the work of God to make us born again, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Every human being is a sinner. He spent the second half of chapter 1 saying that this is true of all in the nations, the Gentile nations across the world. And he spent all of chapter 2 and now up into chapter 3 saying that this is also true of the Jewish people. Even those who are descendants of Abraham, children of the promise, possessing the covenants and the circumcision and all of these things, that every individual even within that chosen nation, is still a sinner who must be saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is how God saves people. And he is showing that, and as we've come to chapter 3, he has said over and over in chapter 2 that even those among the Jewish people are sinners who must be saved by grace alone. He has said, well, then what is the advantage of being a Jew, he says, What is the value of circumcision? And he said, here is the number one advantage. This was last week's sermon, is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning these were the people through whom God gave his word, the scriptures. That is not the only advantage, but the number one advantage that the Jewish people were given is to be the stewards of the word of God in the world. And that brings us to the question that Paul starts with right here in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? What if some were unfaithful? Or, as the King James translates it better, I think, in this case, what if some did not believe? Stewards of the word of God entrusted with the oracles of God and yet not believing the word of God. How could that be? Well, it could certainly be, as we have seen over and over, that all mankind are sinful, and he's going to drive that home even more clearly as we'll get into next week, that no one is righteous, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. It's not surprising that even those who were entrusted with the very word of God to carry it into the world, many might not even believe the word that they were entrusted with. How could that be? This right here, this is an apologetic question, a question that is often raised to kind of question the truth of Christianity, that you have to come up with an an answer for, that you need to know how to answer this. Here's the question. How could it be that Jesus is the Christ? How could it be that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah if most of the Jewish people rejected him? That, that question, it, it would say, well, it, it must be that if the long-awaited Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures that the Jewish people were waiting for, if he had really come, then surely most of the Jewish people would have recognized him and followed after him, rather than most of the Jewish people not recognizing him and rejecting him. That was a big question on Paul's mind. It seems to be the kind of thing, now you, you, you can only read in so much, you know, trying to figure out what did Paul think before he was saved, but throughout the book of Romans, he brings this up 
more times. He's going to bring it up at the beginning of chapter 9 and at the beginning of chapter 10 and at the beginning of chapter 11. So it seems to have been something that was big on his mind and, and maybe even was one of the reasons that he had for not believing before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Surely this Jesus couldn't have been the Christ if all of my Jewish peers say that he is not. Well, he answers that question right here. What if some were unfaithful? What if some were unbelieving? What if they did not believe the scriptures with which they were entrusted? Now you see, he's getting right here at the idea that if you believe the scriptures, including the Old Testament, and especially the Old Testament, is what he's talking about here, then you will believe in Jesus as the Savior. He's already said that straightforwardly. He said in, in Romans 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, that he was preaching the gospel of God, not his own gospel, not the gospel of the apostles, but the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's in the Old Testament Scriptures concerning his son. Jesus himself said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, meaning if you believed the Old Testament, you would believe me for he wrote of me. For if you, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So here's the thing. Here's the big reason for why this unbelief was happening. It's because they didn't believe the Scriptures. Now, this is a strange thing to think of when you consider that within Judaism, there is such a high regard for the Hebrew Scriptures. If you've ever walked into a synagogue, you will see that all over the place. Just a, you know, the placement of the Hebrew scriptures at the front of the room. You, you, you can have rabbis who have dedicated their entire lives to studying the Hebrew scriptures, to memorizing the Hebrew scriptures, knowing Hebrew certainly better than any of us Christian pastors who started learning it when we were 21, 22 years old know it. And yet, they don't believe them according to what Paul says here. I shouldn't just say according to what Paul says, according to what God says, the gospel of God. Now, this becomes really obvious when you come to certain places in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53. You just go and read Isaiah 53. If you question, do the Hebrew scriptures speak of Jesus? Are they about Jesus? It is just plainly obvious that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. And yet, what's the problem? Well, the problem is unbelief. You can steward a, a set of writings all day and yet not believe it. Deuteronomy 18, 18, God tells, tells Moses this. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And Jesus has said, not only that he is the prophet who's like Moses, who's come and is speaking all that the Father has commanded him, he said that he delivered everything that the Father gave him to deliver, that he was speaking not of his own accord, but of the Father. 
Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Why is it that so many among the Jewish people did not follow after Jesus? Well, it's because they didn't believe the scriptures. They did not believe and recognize the voice of God in the scriptures, because if they had, they would have recognized that it was the very same voice coming out of Jesus' mouth. They would have heard his voice, he would have known them, and they would have followed him. They would have followed him. Now, I've got to say, too, that this is not all Jewish people. It says some did not believe. He's going to talk in, in Romans 11 about the fact that there is a remnant. God has not forsaken the Jewish people. There is still a believing remnant, just as there was a believing remnant in the days of Elijah, when he thought that everyone except for him had gone off after the Baals and that he alone was left. He was the only one serving God. God came and told him, no, I have preserved 7,000. A remnant of believers, even in Elijah's day, there continues to be a remnant of believers today as well. It's not a new thing. But I have to say also that this is not just a Jewish issue. It's not just a Jewish issue to disbelieve the scriptures and thus to become unbelieving and unfaithful and to go into sin and to self-promotion and to rebel against the glory of God. Here's the way that Robert Haldane put it back in the 1800s. He says, all who reject the true meaning of the scriptures and attach to them another sense do in reality disbelieve them and set up in their stead a phantom of their own imagination, even while they profess to believe the truth of what the scriptures contain. This is all kinds of sects out in the world who would say, yes, of course we love the Bible, but Jesus is not God as the Jehovah's Witnesses would tell you. Or yes, we love the Bible. And yes, Jesus is God. And the Father is also God. And the Holy Spirit is also God. And all of them once were a man like you are now. And they became God. And as you are, you could also become a God one day. And we love the Bible. That is the Mormonism. And that is completely false. There are so many who profess this, but it's also, it's not just a Jewish problem. It's not just a cult problem. It's a problem with all those who would pick up their Bible and say, I sure am glad I have this. I sure am glad that I have this advantage over all those other people who don't have the instruction book to life. And yet, you don't believe it. Is it God's problem if man doesn't believe is it going to affect God's glory? Is it going to tear down God if people don't believe the gospel? If people sin against God, if people do what is unrighteous, is that going to, this is the question here in verse 3, does their faithlessness, does it nullify the faithfulness of God? What's the answer? No. Absolutely not. Here's a thing that you can't do. Rob God of his glory. It's impossible. You cannot rob God of his glory. He is glorious, and he will take you and everything and every circumstance and every action, and he will turn it all to his glory. Every bit of it. 
whether that's the way you intended it or not. Regardless of whether we're talking about something that is just seems like a great thing that someone has done, helping a little old lady across the street, or whether it seems like, how could this have possibly happened? A suicide bomber taking out a pizza joint full of teenagers in Jerusalem. How could these things happen? Well, God is going to take every bit of it, and he's going to turn it to his glory in his mysterious ways that are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is going to accomplish it. He's going to do it. But here's the question. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And the answer is, by no means, verse 4. You have your Bibles open, right? You're looking at them? Follow along with me, okay? Verse 4, by no means, by no means. This is the first time out of ten times in the book of Romans that Paul uses this phrase. By no means, no way, no how, absolutely not. It cannot be. God forbid it's not the case. Their faithfulness cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. Instead of that, here's what happens. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Though everyone were a liar. Guys, the truth of God is going to stand no matter what. What if nobody among the Jewish people believes the gospel? It's still going to be true. But listen to this. What if nobody in the entire world believes the gospel? What if every single human being in the entire world were to disbelieve and to rebel against God? Well, for one thing, we know that's not going to happen because Jesus died to purchase a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation, and he will redeem them to himself. And he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we know that that's not going to happen. But he says here that even if it did happen, even if no one believed, even if everyone in the world were speaking lies against God, God would still be true. God's truth is not affected by man's lies and disbelief. Now this is, this is sort of hinting at what it says in the Psalms. Every man is a liar. But it says, even if that's the case, God's truth stands. It, when there's a hurricane evacuation order that goes out, sometimes people ignore it. And a lot of times when people ignore it, uh, then there will be others who want to blame the people who gave the evacuation order. Like, oh, well, it must be that the problem is that this evacuation order was not good enough to get people to believe it and to go. Well, you know what? Ultimately, it's the fault of the people who don't go. It's the fault of the people who don't believe that they need to do something about it, that they don't act on it. It's not ultimately the fault of the warning. Is it the fault of God? Is it the fault of God's word if people don't believe it? Absolutely not. This is a temptation by, by Christians and by churches all the time is to say, well, it just seems like we're doing something here that people are not latching on to this message. Maybe we need to just modify the message. Maybe we need to, uh, to be more in tune with our culture and to provide what the culture wants. And, uh, you know, we need to speak in a way that kind of connects with them more. 
Well, you know what that is? That's saying, well, God's truth is not good enough. It seems like all men are liars, so let's get more of an accent like they have to add to the scriptures so that maybe they will attach themselves to it. This says, God's truth is going to stand even if nobody cares. If nobody in the world believed the scriptures, they would still be perfectly true. God is not affected. If nobody believed the gospel, it would still be the only power of God unto salvation for anyone who would believe, both to the Jew and to the Greek, as it says in Romans 1.16. It says this in, in, in Luke 16. That there was a, a, two men who died, one who was a poor beggar named Lazarus and one who was a rich man. And both died and Lazarus went to heaven. And the rich man went to hell. And Jesus tells this, uh, this parable, this story of the, the, uh, the two of them in that state of being in heaven and hell. And the, the rich man says to Abraham, he's calling out from hell to heaven, speaking to Abraham in heaven. He says, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, meaning they have the Bible. They have the Old Testament scriptures. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's presenting this common objection that is in people's hearts. The scriptures are not sufficient. We need a sign. We need a miracle. We need something more than what God has said. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Guys, Jesus literally did rise from the dead. And still, most of those who were physically Abraham's offspring did not believe, even after he rose from the dead. But I, I wonder if there's all, uh, other things. Are you wondering, you know, do I need something more? Do I need something more? Well, no, you don't. You don't. If you're waiting around for a sign, you, you can look at the scriptures and say, I, I, I see that the Bible says that I need to, I need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and repent. I need to turn from being in love with sin to, to loving God in Jesus. I, I see that the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God who, who lived perfectly for us, who died in our place for our sins, who rose on the third day, who ascended into heaven, who is the King. I see that the Bible says that, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I see that the Bible says that, but I'm just waiting until God sends a sign into my life. I want this to connect home to me personally. And you don't think that reading the Bible is connecting home with you personally. This is God's personal message to you, from his mouth to your ears and hopefully to your heart. God might graciously send a sign. He did for Paul. I'm thankful for that. Paul met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Amazing, amazing. But God doesn't need to add a sign to what he said. 
If you're waiting around for a sign, Jesus said a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the the sea, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, here is your sign. Jesus rose from the dead. And the scriptures testify to this. Don't wait around. Listen to what the scriptures say. Come to faith in Jesus. Because the gospel is still going to be true whether you believe it or not. God's still going to be glorified whether you believe it or not. Come to Jesus. But also, if you're a believer and there's something in God's word where you are just waiting around to apply it to your life, you, think, you look at the scriptures and you say, well, you know what? I know that the Bible says you shall not commit adultery, and I know that Jesus said that whoever looks upon a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart, but I am just waiting until something big happens in my life to get that sin of looking at those websites out of my life. God's word is sufficient right here. Yeah, I mean, God will use other means in giving you brothers and sisters in Christ to sanctify you. If that's something, you you need to come and talk to me as your pastor or to somebody. Um, But guys, God's word is sufficient right now. Maybe there's other things in your life where God has, has been tugging on you. Every time you open your Bible, you need to fix this thing in your life about the, the time that you would spend with him on a daily basis, about having devotionals with your family in your own home, or to, to those who are watching on the camera right now, some of you, I know you have providential circumstances like cancer and stuff like that where you just can't be here. I get that. But maybe you're watching because you just haven't prioritized loving God's people in your heart, in your life, and you'd rather be off at a soccer tournament. You know you need to fix that. Maybe there's things in your life where, where you know that there are, uh, there are people that, that you need to serve in certain ways. God's been tugging at your heart to write an encouraging note to somebody. All kinds of things. Um, but, guys, as, as you go to the scriptures, when you see things like love one another, rejoice always, um, serve one another, to, to use your spiritual gifts in serving and building up the church, to flee from immorality, to, to use your body to glorify God, all of these things that the Bible says... Are you waiting around for some extra thing to happen? Well, God might never send some extra thing, and he's under no obligation to do that. And here's what I am pretty sure of in your life. If you're willing to ignore what God's word says about your situation without a sign, you're probably also going to ignore what God's word says to you with a sign, too. I say all that just to emphasize what it says here. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God's word is going to stand. If you don't believe it, if you're not obeying it, it's going to stand anyway. So you need to get on the side of God's word, especially the gospel, as it's primarily speaking of here, the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now that's a quote from Psalm 51 that we prayed from earlier. 
where, where uh, David was praying this prayer of repentance, uh, where he was, was saying to God that, uh, that against you and you only have I sinned. And in response to sin, and, and because of sin, David says, yet God, you'll be justified in your words. You will prevail when you are judged. See, what there is, there's a contrast between God and man here. Man can waver. Man can go up and down. Man can be obedient one minute and disobedient the next minute. Man can have this level of belief one minute and then this lower level of belief the next minute. Aren't you glad that God's glory doesn't depend on that? God is immovable immutable, as we say, unchangeable. He is our rock and our fortress. We need that. And God's word stands. He says, you may be justified in your words, no matter what. Did you know that human sin on the day of judgment is going to testify to the truthfulness of God's word? It's going to show that God's word was right all along, even when we were wrong. And God's word is going to prove right in response to our our actions, our disbelief, our sin. God is going to be proved right, not just in his words, but in his works and in his judgments. He says, and prevail when you are judged. We don't usually think about judgment in that way, do we? Judging God. To prevail when you are judged. Well, the whole world kind of wants to judge God. The whole world wants to say, well, is there a God? Let's look around and see what's happening. Well, I judge that there's not a God because if there is a God, then he would be evil to do these things. I heard a story just about, uh, just a a few days ago, I heard it on a podcast about this guy who had wanted to be a pastor at one point in his life when he was in his early 20s, and he even uh, got accepted into this divinity school. I don't know which one. But in the summer before he was going to go off to start his training to be a pastor, he decided that he would take this summer job as a, a chaplain at a hospital and ended up in pediatric trauma, which is a rough place. I have a friend who's a pediatric trauma chaplain, and it's a rough thing. It's a rough thing. But he had seen some things and just children going through such horrible situations that Based on that, he then decided there is no God. He abandoned his plans to go to divinity school, abandoned everything, abandoned his faith. You know what he was doing? He was judging God. He was saying, well, if these things are this way, then God is evil and therefore I will leave God behind. Do you know what's going to happen in the day of judgment? It's not only human beings that will be shown to be righteous or unrighteous. It's God himself who will be shown to be righteous in all his works. There's a sense in which God himself is justified. As the whole world would throw accusations against him, how could you have let this happen? God will be shown good in all of it. Even that thing you're thinking of. He will be shown to be the God who knew what he was doing all along and who will prevail. In all of this, the point is this. 
What's the point of verses 3 and 4? Well, Paul says what the point of verses 3 and 4 is in verses 5 and 7. Because that point that I just made seems objectionable in several ways. And so Paul's going to raise an objection to it in verse 5. And he's going to raise an objection to it in verse 7. And in those verses, by raising those objections, he tells us exactly what he meant in verses 3 and 4. He says in verse 5, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? But do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, here is what I have just taught you. Here is what Romans 3, verses 3 and 4 has just said that our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. And he puts it another way in verse 7. He says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Which is another objection, but he tells you again, here is what I have just shown you. Here is what the scripture has just taught, that even through human lies, God's truth abounds to his glory. Here is the big point of verses 3 and 4. Here is what I want you to hear. Really, the big point of this whole passage, I would say, is that there is nothing you can do, nothing that anyone can do, that will in any way diminish God's glory. And in fact, what human sin will do in all eternity is make God's glory shine even brighter in contrast to the ugliness of sin. Steve Lawson uses the illustration all the time that that a jeweler will often get out a, a piece of black velvet to set underneath a diamond that he wants to sell you and shine a light on that diamond. And what that black velvet behind the diamond does is it just makes the diamond shine clearer and brighter and crisper, and you see the beauty of it when it's set against the black background. Or we also know that when you go into a movie theater, it's when the lights go down in the theater that the screen gets crisp and clear. Well, you know that when you, when you drive far away from all the cities and the suburbs and you go out into the wilderness and you look out at night into the blackness of the night sky away from all of that light pollution, that is when the stars shine so bright. And that's exactly what's being told us here is that one of the things that God will do with human sin is that for all eternity he will set it in contrast to his goodness and glory And his glory, instead of being assaulted and broken down by evil and sin, it's going to shine even brighter because of the backdrop of the evil which he will judge and make right for all eternity. You cannot tear down God's glory. It is bulletproof. Doesn't matter what you bring against it. Doesn't matter how many people shoot at it. God's glory is just going to shine brighter and show himself to be glorious. Here's what it says is going to happen. Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every person, every soul, everywhere, in eternity, announcing Jesus is Lord, serving the glory of God whether through their glorification or through their eternal condemnation. 
God is glorified. God is glorified. Now, this raises two questions that Paul's going to answer. One is in verses 5 and 6, if you're following along on the back of your bulletin. There's point two, all right? First objection is this. Does that mean that God should not punish sin? If God is going to use all sin for his glory either way, then why punish it? And especially, and that's the context here, is why punish the sins of Israel? Why punish those among the Jewish people who, who are unbelieving? Why should they be condemned if their sin just makes God's glory and righteousness shine even brighter? Well, here's, here's the way it's put. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way. He's giving you a hint right there. This is not an actual objection that Paul is raising. He is giving a hypothetical objection that someone who doesn't believe might say to this. Is God unrighteous in inflicting wrath on us? And he says for the second time in Romans, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? So the question most specifically is, should God just let go of the sins of Jewish people because they were among that physical people of the covenant of Abraham who had all of those advantages, who were called the people of God, should he just say, well, they didn't believe and, and that's just going to make God's glory shine brighter. I'll just save those individuals anyway. Well, he says here, by no means. By no means. And his explanation is, then God couldn't judge the world. He says, if, if God was just going to say, well, my glory shines brighter because of sin, and so for some people, I'll just forget about their sin altogether, and we'll just move on, and we'll just go to heaven anyway, because I'm going to get glory either way. Well, he says there, how could God then judge the world? If he's going to let go of it for some people, why would he let go of it for other people? This gets at something that you might not understand about forgiveness of sin. When God lets go of sin, when God separates us as far as the east is from the west from our sins, God is not just tossing it out. He's not just saying, okay, well, I'll just forget about it. We'll just let it slide. You know what he does with our sin? He judges it. This is saying this right here, that God judges every sin. Even though God's going to use everything for his glory, including your sin. He judges every sin. Where was my sin judged? My sin was judged at the cross of Jesus. I'm not going to glory in eternity of how great a sinner I was, except to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I cannot believe, but I do believe, that Jesus took every bit of my sin, 100%, and it was judged upon him as he cried out, Father, Abba, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But for those who don't believe, their sin will be also judged. It'll be judged for all eternity. And it's going to bring God glory that he would punish and judge sin. Genesis 18.25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He is the judge. He's the judge of all the earth. 
and he will do what is right, and what is right is to condemn sin. For those that he saves, that, that judgment was at the cross where it says in Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And for those he doesn't save, he's going to get glory from what he says in verse 5 toward the end, inflicting wrath. I want you to look at that word wrath. That word wrath there, it's got throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament especially, this eschatological, this end times flavor to it. As, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees went out in Matthew 3 and asked if they could be baptized by John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist say to them? He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath to come. In Thessalonians, Paul tells believers that we who believe are not destined for wrath, but those who are, are destined for wrath. And by wrath, we're not talking about a seven-year tribulation where the church has disappeared for those seven years. Some would take that to be the wrath. Where it comes back is in Revelation 19. When Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead and he comes in person wearing his robe that is dipped in blood and the name across his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he comes to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. That's the wrath we're talking about. Eternal judgment. And he will bring it and he will bring it for his glory. And here's what it says in Psalm 58 verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. We may not understand exactly the feelings that we will have and how we will all put it together in eternity, but the Bible assures us that believer for all eternity, you will rejoice and glorify God for his eternal infliction of wrath upon the wicked, the unbelieving. It will be to the glory of God for all eternity. That doesn't mean that right now, in this world, that you should go about trying to condemn people. It doesn't mean that right now you are to look at people and say, boy, I sure am going to be glad to bathe my feet in his blood. No, right now we are in the unique position in time and in eternity where you can share the gospel with sinners just like you, where they can be redeemed and be glorified in coming to faith and having their sins forgiven at the cross and rejoicing for all eternity around the throne and crying out, to, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty together with the angels. We want to see that, but we also know that absolutely nothing is going to thwart God's glory. Even when God judges sin, it's going to be for the glory of his name. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. God will get the glory in his victory over his enemies, and there is nothing in their rebellion that can do anything about it. Nothing. The United States is unquestionably the most powerful country in the world. And I would say the best country in the world. But it sure doesn't look good, sure doesn't reflect well in the United States if the U.S. 
loses the will to fight and forfeits a war to our enemies. God's not going to do that. God's not going to do that. God's not going to say, well, everybody knows that I could judge sin, so I'll just decide not to. God will carry it through to the very end. Every sin will be defeated. Every sin. Let that be on the cross of Jesus. Guys, if your faith is in Jesus, here is how your sin makes God look beautiful. It's because where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That's what he says in Romans chapter 5. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, which raises the next objection. Let's look at that. This is the final objection, the final point. Everybody wake up. It's the last one, all right? Verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? He's saying, why would God condemn me? Why shouldn't I just sin if my lie abounds to his glory? Well, he puts it another way in verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? And then Paul says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I'll just summarize Paul's answer in this verse by saying, what a dumb question. He answers it much more thoroughly. All of chapter 6 of Romans is an answer to this question. Should we sin so that grace may abound? And the answer there is by no means. But right here, all he says is, their condemnation is just. That is a slanderous thing to say. It's ridiculous to think that we would say that. But it's also something that we get. We understand. When you preach grace freely... It's easy to hear that as a license to sin. I do want to say that we need to take that seriously. The fact that Paul got accused of this, and he seems to have gotten accused of this over and over again. People slanderously charged him as saying that you should do evil so that good may come. Why would they say that? Well, it's because Paul was going around preaching exactly what Jesus preached. Preaching that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. Saying, here are the works of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Paul is going to say this even clearer when he gets to places like chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so many in the world and so many among various religions, even some that call themselves Christian, would look at that message, which we call the gospel, and would say, that can't be right. Because if it's right that God would just forgive sins on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, and by the work of Christ alone, and not by any of the work of the person If that's true, then you're just handing somebody a get-out-of-hell-free card that they're going to take as their own personal card-carrying license to sin. That is the slanderous charge that Paul is talking about. We know that that's not true. Because if you come to Christ, he gives you a new heart. He gives you a new spirit. He writes his law within within your heart so that you will follow after him, so that you will no longer love sin but you will love Christ. Built in with faith is repentance. It's, it's right there. 
you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. So we're just not worried about that. But here's what I want to ask you. Do people accuse you of saying this? If people don't accuse us of saying this, we are preaching the gospel wrong. If we preach the gospel the way that Paul preached the gospel, it's going to have many of the same results that Paul got when he preached the gospel. And this one in particular is to be accused of preaching grace too freely so that people would get the impression that you're saying that sin doesn't matter. Obviously, that's not what you're saying, but I want you to hear this. If you are so worried about making clear that you must obey the law of God, that people don't hear the grace message, then you're not preaching the gospel the way that Paul did. We need to err on the side of preaching too much grace for sinners. Because that's what Paul did. If you are worried, I might get accused of, of having said that God just doesn't care about sin. Well, preach that grace even more freely until you actually get accused of that. I remember when, when I first got here as pastor, we, we started putting up Bible verses on, on the church sign out front. And one of the very first verses that we put up was Romans 3.28 which says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Just put that verse up there on the sign. And it was a couple days later that I, I got a, uh, one of those people are saying comments. Who, who are the people? I don't know. I don't know. But the comment was, that verse on the front sign might give the wrong impression. If we have the verse on the front sign that says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, then we're telling the whole community that their works don't matter. That, that we are a place where you can just do whatever you want to. And you know what my response to the people who were saying, whoever they were, I don't know. Praise God. If we're accused of that, then we're preaching the gospel just like the apostles did. Praise God for the freeness of his grace. We want it to be so clear. We want it to be so clear that if you believe that where grace abounds, or excuse me, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace that is bigger and greater than all our sin. If we're clear about that, then praise God. People are going to misunderstand what we say, no matter what we say. But let's preach grace freely so that we can say, guess what? If you believe all the sin in your life is just going to show how beautiful and gracious God is because he nailed it to the cross and he forgives you freely. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. Now, are we saying that you can sin for God's glory? No. That is slanderous. Those who would say that, it says their condemnation is just. But guys, isn't it amazing that we can say, wow, God will turn even my sin to his glory. He will turn even my sin to his glory. Now, does that mean we sin? Again, no. Do you, is, is the president's limo bulletproof? Yes. Should you therefore shoot bullets at the president's limo? No. 
that ought to be obvious. Is God's glory bulletproof against your sin? Yes. Praise God. Even sin against God will just show how perfect and unchangeable and immovable is God's glory that he cannot be robbed of it, but you don't therefore turn and shoot at God. So, God is gracious. We don't trample on his grace. We don't treat it as an opportunity for his flesh. But, guys, this right here, you know what this ought to do for you? This ought to just take the weight of the world off your shoulders. God is going to be glorified no matter what. No matter what. If you get it wrong tomorrow, if you commit the worst sin of your life tomorrow, God's glory is not going to decrease. Don't go commit the worst sin of your life tomorrow. But guys, it's on God. It's not on man. It's not on the faithfulness of the Jewish people. It's not on the faithfulness of this person or that person or this church or that church. God is going to accomplish his purposes. And we need to rest in his perfect grace where he poured out our judgment on the cross. He's glorious no matter what. Don't assume that he's going to show his glory toward you in grace. Because if your faith isn't in Jesus, he's going to show his glory in your judgment. Don't do that. Turn right now to the one who bought that grace. His grace is free, but it is not cheap. Jesus purchased grace on the cross by his blood. Turn to the one who bought that grace and trust in him and live. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are God who, uh, regardless of, of anything that we do, Uh, regardless of of whether my sermon was right today or whether I did a good job, any of those things that I think about, regardless of of whether any individual in here has corrected the things that they need to in their, their hearts and lives, regardless of whether the whole world is an unbelieving liar against the gospel, God, you are glorified all the more. Your gospel and your glory are unassailable. But I pray that by your grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit applying these words to our hearts, that you would turn people to faith in Jesus, to glorify yourself in us through salvation and redemption through the cross. And I pray also that by your grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you take us who believe and turn us away from unrighteousness, turn us to righteousness. Use the Bible in our lives, apart from extra signs, to bring about faith in an ongoing way, repentance and obedience in an ongoing way. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.